Kennedy, good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Now, for your first travels of the year, I'm presuming it's the first, um, the Micronesian (laughs) nation of Palau, but this has caused you to ponder adults and, of course, the challenges to them, low-lying as they are. What have you been thinking about? Well, I've been thinking about atolls for a while, but uh, particularly prompted at the end of last year by the publication of a new scientific paper um, uh, about atoll futures. The lead author, Sebastian Stiebel, is uh, from the University of Auckland uh, School of Biological Soci- um, Sciences, and I know a couple of the other people on that uh, in that group. Um, one is the science director at uh, Aldabra, uh, that wonderful island in the Seychelles that I had a chance to visit some years ago, and also um, really eminent ecologist James Russell, also from Auckland. And this paper builds on work that I've been reporting on for about 20 years, the work of Paul Kench, who I should say is also a co-author. Paul started some well, decades ago looking, he's a geomorphologist, so he studies landforms and how they change over time. And he's been studying atolls and asking what is really happening to these um, precious and, as we know, fragile or apparently fragile, um, landforms in the tropics. There are 320 atolls scattered through the tropics. Atolls, as I'm sure uh, almost all listeners will know, uh, uh, have formed on the top of, on the, on the rim of an ancient volcano, which has uh, eroded away, leaving a coral reef atoll um, made up of often hundreds of little mutu, or islands, scattered around the rim. And although Palau has just a few atolls and then several um, large rock islands, uh, limestone and other other volcanic and so forth, some nations are entirely atolls, uh, Tuvalu, Tokelau, Maldives, Marshalls, uh, just to name some. So the for decades, the uh, one of the main climate change narratives has been that these atolls are on a pathway to extinction, that they are helpless in the face of rising seas, static and inert, locked in place, slowly drowning by a rising tide. Well, Paul Kench found that the data speaks otherwise. The Of um, some I think now 700 atolls that he studied, more than 80% of them, in fact the figure in the paper is 88%, have not lost land over the last 50 uh, years, but and in fact in many cases have increased in size. So how do we get our head around this uh, apparent um, conflict here of, on the one hand, a prevailing story of a, a very intuitive story that as sea levels rise, these islands are in the, in the path of destruction. How, how can they survive? And yet they seem to. And the answer is that, that they're not static inert landforms. They're highly dynamic. And the best way to think about it is that the coral reefs that surround atolls are sediment factories. They are in constant production of calcium carbonate. And then there's a conveyor belt called waves and currents which transport that carbonate onto the land, onto the motu, and increase their size. And that 
if this process is intact and stable, then the islands that are scattered around these atolls will rise by approximately a centimetre year, a year, keeping pace with rising seas. The problem is that the, uh, in, that the productivity of the factory can be jeopardised by human activity, and so can the activity of the conveyor belt. So here's an interesting point. There's a type of tropical fish, common tropical fish, called uh, a parrotfish. Well, parrotfish eat coral and, well, not to put too fine a point on it, shit it out. And they are responsible for up to 80% of the sand which will accumulate on, cor on coral motu or coral island. Now, if par parrotfish are tasty and good to eat, if you take out the parrotfish in large numbers, you're immediately reducing your sediment supply. Other you know, more destructive things such as sand mining will also, of course, do this at a larger scale. Now, the gist or the thrust of this new paper is that that ecological processes and conservation activities on islands, on island nations, on atoll nations, can in the short term have a tremendously uh, significant impact in increasing the resilience of these islands. A good example would be marine protected areas. Um, these protections of the vital uh, coral-eating fish will have a, will, will serve a, a good purpose. Another factor is that you have seabirds on islands whose guano is increasing the nutrients around the coral reef and leading to healthy reef, healthy reef, more sediment, more sediment, higher islands. So, the, as as has happened in 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 um, just in general in in all countries, the understanding between islands. Uh, well, the the um, the land and the sea, from the mountains to the sea, uh, the connections between um, these disparate r realms, the terrestrial and the aquatic, ha we now understand that they're vitally interlinked. And here um, we can see that uh, what happens on islands affects the oceans, what happens on oceans affects the islands. If we pay attention to the processes that are um, natural processes that are intact, then the island resilience can increase. So I've been thinking about this because it's a very hopeful message. It's a message that returns a lot of agency to atoll nations themselves. You know, over many decades, often uh, leaders of uh, vulnerable countries, uh, Kiribati, Tuvalu, for example, have pleaded with the West over the big picture of carbon uh, emissions and climate uh, greenhouse gases and the need to reduce climate impact. But, and in some ways, I, these island nations have been portrayed as victims, helpless, and in in, in, you know, just. Um, they're not responsible for uh, the the lion's share of uh, um, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, but they are in the firing line as one of the first to to receive it, it, its impacts. But in fact, atoll nations can take action 
um, looking at their land and sea resources, looking at how they handle um, engineering, for example, harbour dre uh, dredging for harbours, channels, building seawalls, sand mining, all sorts of things that can be disruptive to the natural sediment accretion processes. This returns a lot of um, uh, impetus to the to the locals to um, d d uh, to achieve um, significant benefits in the short term. Now, uh, it, Palau, uh, as I mentioned, only has a few atolls, but I, I've been interested that in recent years they drew upon a very traditional um, practice which is similar to the Maori Rahui, called a bull. And they've used this um, principle to achieve marine protection around um, most, or I think most, all of, of Palau. And, uh, and so here's a, an example of a nation that has looked at its own um, ecological practices over, uh, built over thousands of years and taken a significant action. And the gist of this new paper is that uh, all atoll nations can do the same. And I think it's, uh, it's an inspiring piece of work and an inspiring message. When do you set sail? Um, Thursday. <laughs> For uh, two weeks of uh, snorkelling and kayaking around Palau. One of the highlights, Catherine, will be diving in uh, at the famous Jellyfish Lake, one of um, Palau's many... Uh, landlocked saltwater lakes, which is chock full of a non-stinging large jellyfish. Yeah, and well, apparently it's um, remarkable. <laughs> don't mention jellyfish around the mutu here at the moment. Thank you right. very much. Enjoy the trip. Thanks, Thank you. Kennedy Warren.